Um, yeah. And I, I see RC is in the house now, so he has joined us. And so let me bring RC in. Well, as you're bringing him in, let me just say, if we if we were of the persuasion that the Bible does teach that, we would believe that, we, we, you know, even if we didn't like it or it wasn't appealing to our senses, we would still have to believe it if we thought that the Bible teaches that. It's just that we don't think that the Bible teaches that. So it's not like we're picking and choosing based on what we would like to be true. Um, but th- I think there is something to be said for saying, okay, look, not only do we think the Bible teaches, doesn't teach that, but when you look at what it leads to, it could lead to implicit contradictions in the nature of God, number one, and a poor reflection of what we think the nature of God is. So I think it's got a lot, uh, there's a lot there to say. It's not just us picking and choosing what we like. Hello, RC apologist. Uh, hello. Yeah. Good. Thank you for joining us. Um, I, I wasn't expecting to have Braxton on and I wasn't expecting to have uh, you on either. So uh, I guess we just refer to you as RC. Is that okay? Yeah, come on, RC, RCA, whatever floats your boat. All right. Well, I'll, I'll stick with RC because I always think right. of RC, RC Sproul, and <laughs> um, and he represents you know a lot of Calvinists, and so uh, you'll you'll be our resident RC. And he um, was a so, classical apologist, RC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. a pre-sup. He wasn't a pre-sup guy. I'm assuming RC, are you a pre-sup? pre-sup? Yeah, and I actually was a, a classical and leaning towards like what RC had stated. It's only recently that I had gotten involved into the presuppositional. Uh, method after reading some of the uh, Greg Bonson and Cornelius Van Til. I even bought uh, Greg Bonson's new book that just came out uh, this month yeah. or so. I want to get that. It looks awesome. It's $10 on their website for the PDF at least. Great. Well, I, I almost prefer the PDFs anyway. That way you can do search, you know, search for phrases and stuff that you're looking for. But okay. Well, uh-huh. RC, you're here now to defend yourself. And so, mm-hmm. um, Right. What if, what if anything have we said that may be unfair, uh, maybe unfair representation? Um, anything you know? Obviously, I'll give you the ground here just to to kind of represent yourself and defend yourself here. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't think I can really comment on the issue of you know y'all trying to misrepresent me fairly because the point that I would say is that you know y'all have y'all's view on the whole thing, and I know a friend of mine who actually informed me about this. Uh, we have our disagreements, but I think the only thing that I would uh, really have, you know, question about is regarding where, if it's just me being somewhat inconsistent as was kind of the thing with what was brought about, if, you know, someone was raped or anything like that, what would be the problem then at that point of me just, you know, not saying directly at that point while the person is grieving through that process, like just me consoling the person instead of just stating every single theological point of view that I have. Well, I, I would say that is what you should do as a Calvinist. I, I would say the, the worst thing you could do in a situation like that is to teach them Calvinism um, or to bring up the fact that God sovereignly and unchangeably ordained their rape or their child's molestation mm-hmm. or whatever horrible thing that they're that they're going through. I think we at all our sensibilities all know that would be a really bad thing to do. It would also mm-hmm. be equally bad, by the way, for a provisionist like myself to say necessarily, Hey, you know, God is going to bring about good out of this. Um, that may not be what they need to hear either, even though that's something I believe. And so there is a time I agree with you. There, there is a time and a place for every, uh, you know, uh, 
comment or, you know, doctrinal um, thing that you may um, hold to mm -hmm. um, that, that may not need to be brought up in a counseling situation. Um, but my pushback is that truth shouldn't hurt counseling, especially if they ask the question, because sometimes people do ask the why question. It's often a question I'm asked in counseling situations is, is mm -hmm. why did this happen? Um, whereas when that question's asked from my perspective, I can be very truthful without being really too, too bothered by the implications of what I claim. Whereas I think the consistent Calvinist seems to have to kind of maybe bury what they're, what they're saying, if that makes sense. Well, to me, if the argument is then trying to say that, uh, if consul consoling shouldn't have some sort of hurting thing, I, I would even disagree with that. Um, since there are some things we should say that are definitely going to not be sensitive to some people. Like there was a person I knew who was stating that because he uh, had a relationship going on and it didn't work, um, that this whole relationship just fell apart. He was saying, why would God uh, do this? God wouldn't uh, cause or allow uh, this to happen. He would let this woman stay with me for the rest of my life. I have to doubt God now because this happened. And I had to explain that, you know, life isn't always fair. It's like, I don't need to hear that. I don't need to hear that. I want to know why did this happen? Like, I don't know what to tell you other than we're not going to sometimes be with the person we love or desire because they may not love us or anything like that. That shouldn't be a reason for us to have some sort of doubt about the existence of God or his justice or anything like that. So I think there are some things we can say and should say that, sometimes the person might not be comfortable with. RC, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Yeah, so um, first of all, good to chat with you. Um, I, mm -hmm. I think, um, I think though, that we would point out that there is a, now, it, truth is truth. If it's true, then it's true. But Correct. I think that the rub is, okay, in a situation like that, um, obviously, it may actually be for the good of that individual or the woman involved that, that God allowed this to happen, given, mm -hmm. you know, depending on the circumstances. Similarly, um, we I know an older man I was talking to just yesterday whose wife probably only has a couple of months left to live. But she's, you know, it's an older couple. And so even though he was sharing with me that he has some questions and there is this, you know, part of the grieving process and all that, that, that wants to be upset about, upset at God about this and, and all that sort of thing. Um, still, this person has lived a long life and, and you know, it, you can't expect much more than, than what she's had uh, in, the, in that regard. But um, when we're talking about someone who's lost a child and then saying, and then the, the position is, and let's, let's make this worse. Let's, let's say that it's a person who was, they lost a, a 25 year old son and that son um, uh, was not a believer, you know, to say that God may have elected uh, or not elected this person passed over them. However you want to phrase that up. I don't know if you affirm double predestination um, and, and this is for his glory you know, the, it, it seems like there can be hope in these other situations because with the with the with the older couple, he can see her again in heaven with the um, person who loses a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or husband or whatever. Uh, maybe that's maybe, you know, loses them in the sense that they break up. Maybe there's there's hope in the future, but there's no hope in some of these situations uh, on the Calvinist paradigm. And I think that's part of where the difference lies. Where would there be no hope in the Calvinist paradigm on that? If an individual is unelect and and was unchangeably determined to be so, and then and then died, you know, at, at the age of twenty five in a car accident or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. 
So where is that being there? There'd be no hope if we're just simply focusing on that in light of what the entirety of the Calvinist worldview states. Well, the, the lack of hope is that he was ordained before the foundation of the world to be born an unbeliever and remain in unbelief for reasons beyond his control. And mm -hmm. two, that his life was taken from him at the age of 25 through apparent accident, but obviously mm -hmm. was decreed by God as well to be, to lose his life. And so ultimately the hopelessness is the parent grieving because not only is her child lost, but he's separated from God for reasons ultimately beyond his control, despite her efforts to raise him right, take him to church, teaching the scriptures and all the things that, um, that parents, Christian parents would often do that are in grieving situations like that. Mm -hmm. Right, and I would say that we don't know who the elect or the non-elect are. We just simply go by teaching what the scriptures no, but, but in the supposition, this is a non-elect person. This is a 25-year-old person who never professed faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that assumes that in that particular view that we would know who the non-elect are and how we should then treat it in having that particular knowledge. No, that but, but, the supposition, but the supposition, R.C., is that this is a non-elect child of a believer. Mm-hmm. And this this person never confessed faith in Christ, and then mm -hmm. died at the age of twenty five. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's a this is a hopeless situation. I mean, this this, right. this the grieving the grieving that's going on is a hopeless situation. Right, and that Bible does say those who do not believe do not inherit eternal life. They stand condemned because of their sins. Right. Well, but, that kind of brings us to a deeper issue. I don't, I don't know if you just wanted to come on just to talk about this issue with the counseling sort of situation, but I thought mm -hmm. one of the more interesting issues, uh, uh, discussions between you and Skylar was the nature of the nature of compatibilist freedom on Calvinism, because you, you did kind of, and I understand you're, you're having a debate about evil. And at that point you were maybe already halfway through the debate. So, um, I think you maybe fairly and rightly said, well, that's to misunderstand the nuance or whatever of the Calvinist perspective. Um, but I would, I would want to press that. I would want to understand how you see a meaningful expression of freedom such that the unbeliever who rejects God is culpable for that. Um, yeah, like and what, and what is he, re what is he rejecting if Christ didn't die for him? He's, he's not, he's not really rejecting anything because nothing's really being offered to him. Is it? God's law of which he is in rebellion and sins against God's law by disobeying. And, and, and here's where we're getting into it. So that, that rebellion was determined by God, right? Mm -hmm. And so does, so could, is there any, so unchangeably, so he couldn't have, he couldn't have obeyed God's law in, in any of God's laws. He couldn't have done other than whatever God determined, right? In his natural state. No. Right. So, and so do you see the rub? I, I'm just wanting to know, do you see the, like where people like me and people even like Skylar, who's, who's not a believer, do you see where we see an issue with that in terms of justice? I would see where y'all from y'all's perspective may have an issue. Well, mostly yours. I don't see how from necessarily perspective of Skylar, who admits several times he has to borrow and utilize the Christian views of uh, morals in order to make an argument, which I think is mostly the whole thing, is that uh, if he were to utilize his own standard, he can't really say um, that rape is actually evil, since it's right, not existent. It, yeah, that, it's just an opinion that expresses disgust. Right, that's a fair point. I think we have agreement there on that. So, 
but but you pointed to the disobedience as the thing, which is an act on the mm -hmm. part of the agent. So it seems mm -hmm. like you think that that disob that choice to disobey. Would it be fair to say you think that choice to disobey um, God's law is the is the meaningful element that makes him responsible? It makes the individual responsible. Mm -hmm, because that would be the biblical response. Okay, so so now we need to talk about. I think the nature of that choice, which of course is to get to the crux of the matter. I mean, do, do you, do you see that choice? I mean, obviously you see it as a determined choice, right? Right. So would you, do you have a way of delineating the difference for me between, so would you say you're a compatibilist? I would argue that I would affirm the compatibilism. Yeah. So could, do you see any distinction between compatibilism and determinism qua determinism, just hard determinism. I would see the difference being that in some of the theology of the hard determinists, especially like some of the hyper-Calvinists and those who tried to um, pretty much be theological Nazis regarding certain terms you should utilize in conversations, even in just basic um, dialogue, they say that everything is a determined choice and decisions and all these things are non-existent even though the bible utilizes that terms but whatever um so i would yeah say that there is a distinction to be made between the two because in compatibilism or soft determinism that at least states that choices exist but these choices aren't completely autonomous or uh, free in the sense that there is no sort of influence that causes the decisions to be made um, regarding that. So I would, you I would say, affirm compatibilism. Would you say the distinction between hard determinism and compatibilism is, is what makes for the meaningful sense of responsibility? I would say so, yes, that it would be compatibilism that ultimately allows for that responsibility to be there even in a deterministic view. If you go hardcore determinism, will you try to negate any sense of uh, agency? Um, but but of course the hard determinist wouldn't would still say that you have the conscious experience you experience things as though they're genuine choices. So let me repeat back to you what I'm hearing you say, and you tell me where I'm wrong, and then maybe I'll back off. Let Leighton talk because I'm taking over his show here. Um, <laughs> Go right ahead. I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation. But what I hear you saying is I hear you saying, look, the thing that matters, the thing that makes this person responsible, even though determinism is true. Mm -hmm. is that uh, they disobey God's law. They made the choice to disobey God's law. And I asked you, is that what you're saying? And you said, yeah. And mm -hmm. I said, okay, all right. So now from, from that perspective, is it the compatibilist understanding of freedom that distinguishes from hard determinism that, that makes that, that choice more meaningful? Yes. Okay. But then, I, then when I ask you to give me a difference between hard determinism and compatibilism, what I sensed from that, is what I heard you saying was hard determinists don't allow for the terminology that the Bible uses, which gives me the impression that you only see a terminological distinction between hard determinism and compatibilism. And if that's the case, which I certainly think it is, then we're back to the same problem of, I don't see how this person has any meaningful sense of choice or responsibility. Well, it's not necessarily a terminological difference. Like they think that when you use choice, therefore means decision-making, and some of these people don't believe in decision-making. I talked to some of these people, usually would be in the primitive Baptist community that would state that uh, 
well, we don't say choice or decision-making since there is no such thing as choice or decision-making. Everything's determined. They only just use determined, determined, determined. They don't allow for any sort of word to be utilized in which it implies or says a human makes a choice because in their view, a human doesn't make a choice. But in my view, a human does indeed make a choice, even though that the choice um, is still determined. It's still a choice regardless. Real quick, Leighton, because I know you're—I know you've got one in the chamber. Yeah. Um, but but I, I and and by the way, RC, I feel bad that we're kind of—it's you know two of us and one of you. But um, I don't care. It's happened to me before. Try five against one. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there, brother. I know. He he asked for it, so you know. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I go but, street preaching. I've been told to kill myself while I was out there. So, uh, that's terrible. Uh, but so um. But but you but but okay. So you say it's not a terminological distinction. But then what I heard you say was the primitive Baptists demand that we use the term determined. But of course, the the primitive Baptists, the most hardcore of hardcore determinists, will still say, well, yeah. I mean, you experience things as though they're free choices, but you just need to understand that those are not real choices. Those are just determined. All I'm hearing here is that the hard determinist or the primitive Baptist or whatever you want to say is simply. Uh, going with what they see as the logical implication of the determinism, whereas the compatibilist is terminologically using what they see to be biblical language, and I agree that it is, uh, that, that that uses the language of choice and free. It's I'm still not hearing anything other than a terminological distinction. All right. Well, um, I guess what I'll add to that is... Um, what John Calvin himself said, and, and I get your, your feedback on this, RC, RC he says, um, how it was ordained by the foreknowledge and decree of God, what man's future was without God being implicated as associate in the fault, as author and approver of transgression is clearly a secret so much excelling the inside of the human mind that I'm not ashamed to confess ignorance. I daily so meditate on these mysteries of his judgments that curiosity to know anything more does not attract me. Um, and there's other similar quotes from Piper and MacArthur and others that just pretty much appeal to this tension or mystery or paradox or tenemy, depending on which Calvinist you're talking to, that ultimately is saying, yeah, um, God is the ultimate one who decrees, determines what our choices will be. In other words, you, you do believe there's a deliberative process, obviously, in making a choice, but you also maintain that that deliberative process is controlled, ultimately determined by God, which seems to make the process itself uh, superfluous. Um, and, and it seems like at least by this quote from Calvin and others that they're pretty much conceding that, that that's just a mystery beyond our comprehension. Is that kind of where you land on this too? Is it's just, it's the Bible. So we just accept that, that seeming contradiction and just say it's true. So wait, repeat that again. Seeming contradiction regarding to what? The, the seeming contradiction that you are responsible for choices that someone beside yourself determines. Right. Because I would say that there are the facts that are laid out within the Bible and that these facts are at least established by some sort of norm or standard. In this case, would be God's standard on his authority and that we have these experiences that we, yeah, I'm given again, a tri perspective point of view since I've, starting to look into that. And that was part of what I was utilizing in the debate to begin with um, is that we have God's standard as the norm that should establish it. And then we have the facts that are laid out in the text of scripture and that we experience these particular uh, facts that are laid out 
And so I would have to accept what the Bible states about God's uh, termination and yet what it also says about human agency, just like in the same sense that uh, the Bible does state that uh, God loves all kinds of human beings, but yet at the same time, the same people that it says that about, if they are sinners, as Psalms would say, that God hates all who work iniquity and it uses it in a continuous sense, not just a single one time or a future upcoming, but in a continuous sense, that he hates those who are continuing to be living in unrepentant sin, um, then I would have to go that there are indeed Verses that seem like they conflict, but once we understand that from our theological point of view, okay. um, then we would have to go with that. Well, so in some sense, there I, is a mystery. Let me, let me explain how I would, um, I guess, reconcile the passages that seem to say God loves everybody and then other passages where it talks about God hating people. Um, in, the, in the same way that even as a Calvinist, you could say before you became a Christian, before you believed in God, you were under the wrath of God. You would still believe that God, though you're under his wrath, his hatred, his judgment, still loves and wants you to be saved because you're elect after all. Mm -hmm. In the same way, from our perspective, we can say there's one sense in which God desires for all to come under his grace and mercy. But as long as they're in rebellion, they're under his wrath or hatred. And so there's a sense in which God can show hatred for the world in the sense of his wrath over sinners, while at the same time still holding out hope for them to repent of their sin and to come to faith. Now, on Calvinism, obviously, that's done through effectual means of people he's chosen beforehand, but that doesn't change the fact that elect people prior to becoming Christians are under the wrath of God and thus under hatred of God. So in a sense, even on Calvinism, you have to admit there can be people who are both hated and loved at the same time in the sense that they're under the wrath, but still God desires and longs for them to be under his mercy and provision. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, how would you justify the fact that he says he loves everybody but hates some? Well, I kind of gave a bit of that explanation earlier is the fact that we just simply have um, the facts that these are established, that this is what the Bible says, God's word is true, and we have to accept that it is true. We don't just simply think that, therefore, the Bible is somehow an error. You, The way that you were, forgive me if I misunderstood you, but you said you said in your statement that God loves all kinds of people. And so I, I was fully expecting you to come back and say the way I reconcile that is I don't say that God genuinely loves everybody individually without exception. Mm -hmm. I believe that he loves all kinds of people. So he loves some people from this nation, some people from this nation, some people from this nation. That's the way I was expecting you to reconcile those two seemingly contradictory statements. Mm -hmm. But Am I wrong on that? Is that what you believe? I'm not sure which kind. I would of say that there's even love that he would have for some of those who are not in uh, God's covenant of grace, because then we have the issue of common grace that he has allowed for some people to be alive, to receive uh, wealth and health or any of these sorts of things that uh, no one deserves. Um, according to the Bible, we all deserve the wrath of God, but at the same time, he still uh, gives more than just simply the ability to still be remaining alive without being uh, condemned to death, as Romans six twenty three says, is the wages of sin is death. So I would say that there is some sort of love that he would have for uh, some people, but the the love uh, that he has for the non believer uh, would be different than the kind of love that is then given unto those who are under the covenant of grace. Okay, and I, I can understand um, the the difference between those two distinctions. My point is is that when when you're talking about God's expression of love and desire for all to be saved while at the same time holding to a Calvinistic premise, 
there seems to be a, a squaring of the circle that needs to take place there. And some Calvinists square that circle by saying, well, um, the, the desire is really not for all people. It's really for all kinds of people. And you have other Calvinists who say, no, God genuinely does have a desire for all people, but it's his prescriptive will versus his decreative will. Um, and so I was just trying to find out what kind of Calvinist you were um, and which approach that you take uh, on answering that quandary, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, R.C., you are saying that, that the way he expected you to respond, that is true. In a salvific sense, he loves all kinds of people, um, but there is a sense of love in which he loves everyone and that he'll rain on their crops, um, provide food, you know, those kind of things. Is that correct? Yeah, like I would affirm that the common grace view that is uh, stated, there is a different kind of love, and not just simply in those particular senses of the salvation and the common grace thing. I think there's uh, different categories of love that he has extended upon all people. God does indeed love all uh, people, but there's also differences in how that is then um, applied there, since there is indeed, even in the Bible sense, different um, definitions and terms that describe love on different sure. levels. Sure. So D.A. Carson, uh, without getting into the Greek of, of the different variations of love, um, D.A. Carson lays out a few ways in which God loves people. One of those ways is the salvific love. One of those ways is the way you discussed as common grace, the, that, that he loves them and that he rains on their crops and all those kinds of things. And then the third way is that he takes a stance of love toward them. In other words, they still hear the gospel, right? They still, they still hear God's law or, uh, you know, so in that sense, they, they hear the call, but they're not, they're not, um, it's not the, uh, effectual, uh, call. Right. So, um, but, you know, of course, here's here's the issue where we we and I understand and appreciate that you're trying to be faithful to Scripture. And so you're saying, hey, look, I, I'm believing this because I think this is what the Bible teaches. But I think the rub for a lot of people is, OK, but that seems like an interesting way of trying to say that God loves everyone because um, he's going to rain on your crops for a while. But then he's going to send you to hell unchangeably for all eternity. And you never had a genuine possibility in, in, in any, in the meaningful sense of, uh, because you were never irresistibly graced. And is that really a love? What, you know, what kind of love is that if I'm going to rain on your crops, you know, and let your crops grow, but then ultimately I'm, I'm going to send you to hell for all eternity. I, I think people look at that and they say, I don't know if I can call that love in, in any meaningful sense. Um, I, I, if he doesn't have a comment on that, I'll, I'll just point out also that love is defined for us in scripture. We don't have to wonder what it is. Love is patient. Uh, love is kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account wrongs suffered. And I'll just point out a few of those things. Um, it does not seek its own. For example, it seems to me that all that God is doing is seeking his own with regard to the reprobate because he's seeking his own glory through their destruction. So, uh, I, I don't see patience with the reprobate. After all, they're born hated before they're even born, salvifically at least. It's not kind. I don't think you can call what God does to the reprobate kind in any uh, meaningful fashion. Um, it, it's not jealous. It sounds like to me that's completely jealous on God's part. So in, in other words, we're, we're just pushing back to say, and what's, what kind of love is this, as has been asked by uh, David Hunt and others, what kind of love is this to call what God is doing to the reprobate how how it seems like it totally removes any meaning of the word love to call what God's doing to the reprobate love. And that's why I think you have people like A.W. Pink 
just coming right out just saying God doesn't love everybody. Whereas, you know, MacArthur takes issue with that, for example. Right. And I have criticisms of all the people that would be within the uh, reformed or even the presuppositional camp. I don't agree with a lot of my peers on a lot of certain things. And hence why I'm usually the black sheep of the Calvinists because of the things I affirm and who I am in that regards. Um, but I would ask the question then if that's, if we're trying to ask about this doesn't seem like love or anything like that, my question would be then what is the objective standard that helps us determine that certain thing um, that is stated on God um, isn't loving at that point? What is the standard that is objective for that? I think that would be what Leighton was pointing out, that the Scripture gives us these various categories or these various items that represent what love is. And 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 Leighton should comment on that further if he wants to. But I would just say, well, this is one of the things that I see as we look at Scripture and we see what justice is. I was saying this perhaps before you came on. We get an understanding of what justice is. The Bible's pretty clear about what justice is like. And then it's saying about God, he's like that. He's just. Um, we have an understanding of what love is like. I mean, saying God's like that. He's He's loving, and uh, Father. We know what a father is like. He's Father. You know, the, these are things that we understand. Um, and then obviously God is the maximal expression of these things. But nonetheless, they're concepts we can connect with. And then we say, "And God's like that." But if we say, "Well, justice for God or love for God is is not what you're thinking of," uh, it becomes difficult. It becomes difficult to, to the, the, those words seem to lose meaning. Okay, but while we understand what the Bible does state about what the definition of love is, then there is the application of how then we understand that a certain thing would apply to that. Because I've met some people um, in the past, there was like this guy who tried to predict the end of the world and claimed that he was a prophet of God and stated that uh, people being sent to hell. Um, is not a loving thing by any means. And in order for uh, there to be a loving God, hell doesn't exist and God doesn't send anyone to hell because the person claimed that if you have someone who you made uh, and the Bible says God loves the world and you send the person to hell, how is that loving to send a person to hell if you just want to straight up save them? So yeah, fair, fair question. That. And I think someone right. in the chat raised that question. And so um, obviously it's not all about loves. Love is, so God is loving. God is also just. I, I always talk about those things at the same time because, uh, and he's the maximal expression of both of those things. God must dispense justice. Otherwise, he won't be just. If we were to capture Adolf Hitler, um, you know, if he survived World War II and we captured Adolf Hitler, it wouldn't be a good thing if we said, well, just give him a hug and then let him go because, you know, and tell him not to do it again. That would not be good. That would be bad. The justice system would not be good if they did that because the good thing is to dispense justice. And if God is the maximal expression of love, justice, and goodness, it would not be good if God didn't bring justice. But because, but it's not just justice, because God is loving, God then uh, wants to offer love as well. And so the way that he does this, I think beautifully, and of course, as you know, is um, he pays the price by sending his son to be God incarnate and die on behalf of man so that the justice is there and the love is there at the same time. And I think it works out beautifully. But of course, if someone rejects that, then of course, obviously justice has to be brought and there's hell. So there is the offer of salvation that anyone can freely choose and, and accept and become a part of the corporate body of the elect. But um, 
but on Calvinism, uh, we're, we're to understand that he loves these people in some sense of love, but bef before the foundations of the earth, but you know, he ordained that they would be, uh, if you want to use the Passover language of someone who's not a double predestinarian, which I think still shakes out, shakes out the same, or if you want to be a predestinarian in either way, this person was certain to end up in hell and never genuinely could have chosen otherwise. And so I think that's a, a stark difference between the two systems. And again, the H1 is going to have problems that are going to be in the different view because then the same accusation can sort of similarly be made since you brought up Hitler asking the question if uh, Hitler were to repent of his sins um, on that last day and he accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, would you um, state and believe that he would be saved if, because we can't know unless, you know, the this distinction that was what uh, Leighton was saying earlier regarding the non-elect um, example that was given. If Hitler repented and accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and believed in grace by faith, is Hitler saved and going to heaven? Yes. Okay. But, but justice has still been brought. It's just right. that Jesus took the punishment. Right. But some people would state that that wouldn't be justice and that someone to state that is someone who affirms uh, the worldview of Nazis, according to some people who try to bring that up. So the question then again, when we're examining these issues of what is, you know, um, not loving or what seems unfair when we're examining different worldviews, we go by what is the objective standard. And I don't know if you would sympathize at that point if we're just simply going by trying to state what the Bible says. And I would say the same thing about y'all, that y'all are simply trying to go by what does the Bible state. And that's the one thing I at least appreciate about you and Leighton in regards to that compared to some people I have encountered who just simply state well it seems unfair but when i ask about the bible it's like who cares what does your heart say seems well, to be and that's and that's a fair point rc but i don't think we're saying i think you captured it perfectly both right. you and we are interested in what does the bible say right. and and what the bible reveals about god that's our standard um not to say that there aren't things that we can learn through general revelation, but, but it would be, but see, you would, you know, I, you obviously chalk up soteriology differently. That's the whole point of this conversation. Nevertheless, um, we, we have the person that, that would say that, that that would be unjust if, uh, Hitler were to become a Christian and then be allowed entrance into heaven, that that's, that just feels unjust. You would agree with us, I think, that that would be to misunderstand the nature of the cross and what's going on there. And, uh, and, and, and that would be to just go on your feelings. Whereas, you, you know, both you and we are trying to look at, no, what does scripture say about these things and how can we put that together? Well, and, and there's the fact that, that Jesus anticipates those kinds of, of arguments by talking about the vineyard, the people who work a long time in the vineyard and they get the, the same pay as the people who came at the last minute and, and get the same exact pay. That, that's the kind of, of arguments they're bringing up is how in the world can you show mercy to these Gentile barbarians who haven't been running and working after the law like we have, and you're going to give them the same reward that you're giving us. I mean, this is exactly the kinds of things um, that that the Bible anticipates um, people bringing charge again. I can't find any any scriptures where the anticipation of what Calvinism is claiming is ultimately true, um, and that and that's what we're pushing back on is what what tension does the Bible afford? We we all admit the Bible has some mysteries. But what mysteries do the, does the Bible afford? It all comes down to exegesis. It all comes down to how we interpret passages. And it comes down to the objective standard that you already mentioned. And that's one of the reasons I brought up the definition of scripture 
of love because you you continually said there's a general sense in which God does love the non-elect. And that's why I said, well, objectively speaking, uh, from the scripture's vantage point, here's the way love's defined. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, it goes further than just to say what love is. It, it actually starts by saying what love is not. And it actually anticipates the very thing that you talked about, benevolence. Because it goes, it first talks about uh, you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. It's worthless. In other words, you could have all power and, and without love, it's worthless. All knowledge, it says if you you, you could know, fathom all the mysteries and not have love, it, it's worthless. So in other words, omnipotence and omniscience without love, it might as well be an all-powerful demon. It, it doesn't mean anything. And then he even goes on, you can give... Uh, even says you you can give all your possessions to feed the poor. In other words, you can send rain and sunshine. You can be benevolent all you want, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. And so he even anticipates this common kind of uh, giving stuff to people and anticipates that and says, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about love. So what are we talking about when we're talking about love? We're talking about, again, patience, kindness, not seeking its own, not being jealous all of which fly in the face of the way Calvinists describe the way God treats mm -hmm. and feels about the reprobate within their worldview. So mm -hmm. we're not we're not bringing this argument as an emotive argument against Calvinists. We're bringing this right. argument as a biblical argument, saying what you're saying about the reprobate, the reprobate of the Calvinistic system does not fit the biblical definition of what love is. Okay, and so would you state that because of that particular definition that you have provided from first Corinthians, I'm assuming if my memory serves me correctly 13. during the passage. Yes, 13. First Corinthians, um, yes, first Corinthians so then my question would be then if it's for example, one of the that you stated within the qualities is uh that uh, love is not jealous, correct? Correct. Does that mean then that God would have no sense of uh any jealousy within him at all? Or would this just only apply in the application of when the love is applied? Well, when we're talking about the jealous kind of love that the Old Testament references is what I'm assuming you're talking about. It's not talking about to the neglect of the person that they're loving. It's talking mm -hmm. about, I'm jealous for your relationship with me because the relationship with me is what's best for you. In other words, right. what's best for the, the individual, what's best for people is to have a loving relationship for God. So for, for people to experience the best life, and the most abundant life is to have a love relationship with God. So his jealousy is actually for their benefit, not for his own. And so in that sense, it is good. But when you, when you insert reprobate into that worldview, then all of a sudden that kind of jealousy doesn't make any sense anymore because it's not a loving kind of jealousy for their well-being. It's a jealousy for his own glory to their expense. And that's where right. the problem is. Well, that, again, I would affirm what you had just stated there making those particular distinctions. Since again, there are, different types of jealousy that is mentioned and there is a jealousy that is mentioned in the old testament uh, regarding god being a jealous god but at the same time when love is applied during in the love of god and his attributes we see one of the descriptions of that in first corinthians 13 explains that love is not jealous therefore whenever this love is applied it doesn't contain uh, jealousy at least in the context when love is being applied from god's perspective which i believe is what god or Paul is describing about God's love in First Corinthians thirteen within those passages. Okay, well, I, I, I don't see how that works, given the way God feels about the reprobate is not a jealousy for their well-being and therefore for the relationship. And I, in other words, I don't see how that you've squared that circle. But nevertheless, I, I, I don't want to uh, continue to just push on one thing over and over. 
Um, but before we move on, I, I'm really curious about this, and this is something I've brought up to other with other Calvinists because I think it really hits the the major issue of our distinctions. Um, do you believe in hardening? In, in other words, do you believe that a person's heart can grow hardened to the things of God and, and to the truth of God over a period of time where they become more and more uh, blind and, and deaf to the truth and therefore re resistance uh, to the truth? Um, is that something that, that fits within your worldview? Yes, I would affirm that. Okay. So can you help me understand the difference between the capabilities, the moral capabilities of someone who has not yet grown calloused and hardened to the truth of God and someone who has become as hardened as Schuyler fiction or as uh, the Pharisees possibly even of Jesus's day that he was calling whitewashed tombs, uh, the people who were given a spirit of stupor, eyes that they no longer could see, ears that they no longer could hear, uh, they were ever seeing, never perceiving, that, that, that form of hardness that the Bible clearly talks about oftentimes and that maybe you know eight 10 15 year old who's still a sinner but hasn't grown calloused or hardened yet can can you help us understand the distinction in your worldview between those two people like i would have to know what you would mean at that point because there's a lot i could get into and i'm trying to at least understand what what exactly you were looking for in I terms think, of okay. the distinction yeah go ahead braxton maybe you keep in mind me. i'm also not a philosopher so some of the things you no, this is more theology. More. This is more about theology, um, really, about how 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 you understand the nature of man, uh, because the nature of man on Calvinism is born with this complete moral incapacity to respond positively to the truth of God, because they're spiritually blind. They have eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear from birth. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I believe that that is a condition, but I don't think it's a condition from birth. I I think it's a condition of judgment that can happen to somebody who's rejected the things of God mm -hmm. over and over and over again. The Calvinist seems to believe it's ontologically it's a condition by nature from birth that they have no control over. And I am trying to get Calvinists to explain to me how they can maintain a belief in, in this concept of hardening and mm -hmm. in the concept of total inability, total depravity from birth, because they seem not to compute. They don't seem to be they don't they don't seem right. to coexist very well in my mind. Right, but, and I'm trying to right, understand but it. Right, but again, like some of the terms, moral culpabilities just sounds like pollo la queso quesadilla to me. Like a, to me, it doesn't make that much. I don't know what that means. Oh, I so, understood it because it made it made me hungry <laughs> when you just said that. <laughs> let me, so let me I give understood it, it. Let me give it a shot, RC, at what I think he's saying, and and Leighton, correct me if I'm wrong. So um, I'm go get some food until doing. God irresistibly graces you. <laughs> until God irresistibly graces you, you're not going to respond to grace until. Uh, your eyes are opened. You're not. You're you're, mm -hmm. you're in a state. You're in a state of what? You're in. A, you're you're not yet elect. You're not yet graced. You're not yet. Uh, you need, you need a miracle. You need right. a miracle. Right. Okay. So you're so yeah. you, so you're you're turned off. We might say in that sense um, right. to the things of God. Okay. But then it, I've heard you say it this way, Leighton. I know you've used it in a different context. But then the hardening comes, and it's like, why would you put a blindfold on a blind man? It's like, um, what, what is the, what, what is the change? What is happening? That's different now that I've got a hardened heart. How is, how, how are my capabilities different now from what they were, um, before that it's, it seems to be a redundancy as I think, is that what you were driving at Layton? Yeah, it, it is a complete redundancy. They're born corpse like dead. And the, the way the Calvinist describes spiritual deadness, 
um, that means they don't even their eyes don't even work. They're dead, and they don't have they have no ears to hear. Um, but yet, the Calvinist still maintains that people become blinder and deafer. I'm like, okay, how do you become deafer than totally deaf? How do you become blinder than totally blind? It doesn't doesn't compute. Now, the Calvinists are good when it comes to describing total depravity when it comes to the morality of people. And you'll often hear Calvinists say, well, when we say total depravity, we don't mean people are as bad as they could be. In other words, they're not doing with their hands murder every single day, or they're not strangling people or stealing stuff every single day. And so, in other words, they're not as bad with their hands as they could be. And if they would just, if Calvinists would just take that same principle and apply it to the eyes and the ears spiritually, then it would make perfect sense. It, they would have a good anthropology because then people wouldn't be as blind from birth as they could be, or as deaf as they could be, just like they're not as immoral as they could be. And it seems like the Calvinists have have just um, misapplied anthropology and this fallenness of man to say, well, people are as blind from birth as they possibly could be, um, but they're not as bad as they possibly could be. And I'm just saying, why not just say, as it seems like the scripture says, is that unless you close your eyes, unless you grow hardened, you are able to see, hear, turn, and repent. And therefore, you're responsible. You're able to respond to the truth of God. And only if you reject it for a, a period of time, do you become hardened and calloused and possibly cut off in your unbelief judicially, uh, which is referred to as judicial hardening uh, by most theologians. And so uh, th this is what I'm just pushing on. And I, I didn't know, RC, you may not have dealt with that before. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. You you obviously didn't prepare for our discussion or anything like that. And if and if you don't have an answer for that, that's fine. I just wondered if you might be able to explain from your worldview how those two things comport, if that makes sense. Okay, so what do you mean by comport? Uh, well, let's let's move on. I, I, I think I, I don't know how else to explain it to make it um, to make it any more clear. And so, obviously, that's not something that that you have dealt with before, and that's fine. I, I don't well, it's just the term to... "comport." I've never heard it before. Um, so. How do you, how do you reconcile the two? How do you make sense uh, of okay. that? I make sense okay, of it. So, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, like I stated earlier, I would go by that the fact that God states that these are the things that happen, and God's word is true, and God is true. Uh, let God be true. Like make every man a liar. And so I go with the facts that there are people that would then be uh, hardened or hardening um, in that process. I do think indeed that there is both the idea that God hardens people and that they themselves continue to harden themselves um, through the process. I don't see any mean to alienate or isolate uh, the notions which are both mentioned in Exodus and I think applies also within Isaiah and 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which I Again, earlier, as I said, I have a controversial division among the others and my peers, as I think that that refers to Yahweh, not uh, the devil in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But I would say that in light of all that about the hardening, I think indeed the Bible describes that God hardens some people and they harden themselves and there's others that aren't. And I just reconcile the fact that this is the reality that God has established, just like I believe it is a reality that heaven and hell exist because that's what the Bible states. Okay. I, I, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but I, I did not see how you reconciled those two perspectives. It still seems to me that the eight-year-old who has not yet grown hardened and callous to the things of God is just as morally incapable of responding to the truth as is the 80-year-old who has rejected the things of God his entire life. I, I, I'm not seeing how you've reconciled that. But again, I, I told you I wouldn't uh, uh, press you to overly, yeah, I, overtly. And 
Braxton, late, you want to add something to that? Yeah, all I would add, and this this is this isn't really even directed just toward you, RC. I, I appreciate again, I appreciate your consistency and I appreciate that you're willing to come on and chat with us. Um, but I would say, cause I've had, I had similar conversations with Calvinists lately and, you know, um, I, I think that when we're confronted with things that seem to be, uh, that seem problematic or seem strange or, you know, if there's a system of, of comparing scripture with scripture that takes into consideration the whole of biblical teaching and seems to slide nicely on top of these concepts and make sense of them. Sure, one could say, okay, that that I understand why you think that's weird. And I don't all I know is I think the Bible is saying that, so I'm still going with it. I, I get that and I appreciate the the faithfulness to the Bible. But um, but it, it could be that the faithfulness to the Bible comes in saying, you know what, I it seems like maybe this other way of understanding the Bible and what the Bible is saying fits better. And so this is just more of a challenge to people in every realm of theology to, to not, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying you're doing this RC, um, but, but a challenge to evaluate and say, you know what? Um, I'm not just going to stay dug into my position. If I'm confronted with real problems that I, I don't see a clear answer to, I'm, I'm going to consider the possibility that this other orthodox position on a secondary matter might, might answer it better. And, and so that's, I'm not really looking for a response or anything, although you can, I, but that's just directed to everyone, I think. Yeah. And, um, uh, RC, I, I'll give you kind of the last last word here. Is there anything else you'd like to to share um, with us before you drop out? Because I, there's a couple of things I wanted to cover before we're done here, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to to give any last words of of uh, you know advice and or defense. <laughs> well, I don't. I, I've tried giving a defense before, and I mean, I've, I mean, that's on my channel is regarding some of the stuff I've said. So I just lead people to there if they're going to look for uh, justifications on some of the views of Calvinism or theology in general that I hold to. Um, but overall, my advice would be that when examining these things, at the same time, I think what we need to kind of drop, and I'm not necessarily accusing you or Braxton of doing this. I actually know uh, uh, Braxton has some, you know, uh, relationships with some people that are in the Reformed theology perspective. I think what needs to kind of be dropped is sort of like a very antagonistic um, kind of approach that usually is out there because there are some people who do not want to give any sort of grace for a conversation um, regarding these matters and think that any time of, uh, and that just for their side, even the Calvinists I know who uh, sort of go the same route, hence why I sort of isolate myself away from them. People just stating that, you know, whatever these people say, is dishonest and they're just hiding what their true intentions or true uh, things are. I even knew one guy who said that uh, after he left Calvinism, he said that if he was still a Calvinist, he would be lying to people and eventually try to murder them for some reason as if he thinks that's the logical conclusion. But I think that people need to you know, come together and reconcile that even while we have these differences, um, we need to be utilizing these differences um, for the cause of getting the glory of Christ out there, to get the gospel out there. I uh, attend a Southern Baptist church, uh, and they are certainly not on the perspective of the uh, Reformed persuasion, but at the same time, we would say that 
uh, as my pastor would say, John Calvin, uh, Jacobius Arminius, uh, Molina, they were, they're right on some things, but they're wrong on others. Uh, we need to reconcile that they, all these people speak some sort of truth on some matters, but we need to bring those in to spread the gospel, to witness to the atheist, to witness to the Muslim, to witness to the deist, to witness to the Buddhist and the Hindu. We need to put our efforts together to realize that we're not enemies, that we are brothers in Christ. I would see you as a brother in Christ. I would see Braxton as a brother in Christ. And that we, we come together. We need to uh, we can have these discussions on differences, but we need to ultimately remember at the end of the day, we profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we are called to share the gospel and to get that commission out there. And so that would ultimately be my advice is that we need to kind of drop this kind of war attitude that I've been seeing lately on the Internet um, and just show the grace and mercy of God and that unification between brothers and Christ on differences so that we can get the gospel out there. Yeah. And I, and I will say to that, I, I agree with the sentiment of the idea that we need to keep the priorities where they need to be, obviously on uh, evangelism, on reaching others, on spreading the good news of the gospel. Um, I, I think it is possible to address the differences that we have with each other in a loving way, which I think we do here on this program, as, as best as possible. That, that's not to say that everybody who participates in side chats and other places always uh, shares my goal in that. Um, and, uh, and we often bring correction and rebuke for that. But nevertheless, we're striving to address our Calvinistic brothers by saying, this is why we disagree with you. This is one of the reasons, practically speaking, that we think that um, Calvinism fails uh, to be a good basis for apologetics and evangelism. Uh, are the best basis for apologetics and evangelism. Um, we're, we're thankful for some of the blessed inconsistencies that I'm sure Calvinists would say the same thing about Arminians and others as well. Um, but it, but I, I think it is possible to walk and chew gum at the same time. I think it's healthy for the church to learn how to express their differences of opinion without being overly disagreeable. Um, my wife is a marriage and family therapist, and she talks about often how the, the worst uh, situations are the ones where the couples have buried their disagreements uh, for the sake of unity. Uh, in other words, uh, you, you can pretend to be unified by burying your disagreements or pretending they don't exist, or you can learn to speak in a healthy way towards one another and still uh, in a loving way disagree without um, drawing lines in the sand so deep that you're not able to still uh, have conversations like the one we're having now. And so I appreciate RC you coming on. I appreciate you you giving your perspective. I think the the final thing you said there was a good note to end on, uh, at least with our discussion here, uh, with regard to um, keeping the main thing the main thing to continue to focus on the areas that we need to focus on. That we need to unite around evangelism. We need we do need to unite around our the common cause that we have. But at the same time, I don't think there's anything wrong with pointing out um, distinctions, especially. Uh, given the fact, um, as I think Braxton was pointing out earlier, is that when you're talking about a Christian worldview, there's a broader uh, tent where you could say, okay, even as a defeater, if I'm speaking to an agnostic and an atheist, okay, well, you may not like Calvinism, but there are other many Christians within Orthodox Christianity that that don't believe in a sovereign decree in the way that I've explained it. And so if that, if that helps you to swallow uh, and to understand uh, our perspective from a different vantage point, 
um, then I think they should at least know that that there's something out there besides Calvinism that's giving answers to these questions because I think there's a lot of people walking away from Christianity because they think Calvinism is what's representing uh, the Christian faith and that's the only representation of it. And I, I don't, that that's where I'm trying to correct or right the ship, so to speak. Um, and, and, I, and I hope that people can respect that even if they disagree with it. Um, nevertheless, thank you, RC, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me on.